Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pump Court Family Law Podcast. My name is Tara Lyons and today I welcome Helen Brander, also from Pump Court, as my co-host. Many of you know Helen from previous episodes. She's a leading family barrister and commentator with a particular expertise in crypto assets and forged documents. She's also a part-time district judge and a private FDR judge. Why the need for such an impressive co-host, you might ask? Well, the answer is our guest. Today, we have the pleasure of being joined by His Honour Judge Edward Hess. His Honour has a string of accolades to his name. He's a circuit judge, the lead judge of the London Financial Remedies Court, Deputy High Court Judge and Deputy National Lead Judge. And he's co-chair of the Pension Advisory Group. He's given a number of well-known judgments, including W&H, that all-important pensions case, and more recently P&Q, uh, concerning soft loans. So what better person to speak to Helen and I about the Financial Remedies Court, the efficiency statement, and the Pensions Advisory Group number two. Your Honour, Helen, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. And thank you. Um, and uh, yes, lovely to speak with you both. Thank you, Helen. And Helen, um, seniority uh, before beauty do you want to kick things off <laughs> that may be your <laughs> yes quite happy to yes um so judge i wanted to talk to you about the financial remedies court in particular um, yes and uh, going right back to the beginning of it why do we need a financial remedies court at all well i can uh, answer that by saying this until probably six or seven years ago uh, you will remember that there was no specialism no ticketing for financial remedies court uh, judges uh, and, and really they were just treated as part of family law in general uh, and the result of that was that an awful lot of cases were being handled, some quite big cases were being handled by, by judges who had no experience of financial remedies um, in their practice uh, and had very little experience of financial remedies in their judicial practice. Um, in terms of training, they may have had um, about three quarters of a day in their initial general DDJ uh, training, but other than that, would have had no training at all, no separate training uh, at all. And I was the recipient of an awful lot of um, conversations and uh, uh, confidences at that stage of uh, uh, parties, practitioners who had had very bad experiences. For example, this is perhaps the most common example, it happened a lot of going and expensively uh, kitted out legal team, solicitors and barristers, of experts, practitioners, um, going to an FDR and having um, in front of them a, ju a judge who really had had very little experience of financial remedies work. And when it came, for example, to giving an indication at an FDR, uh, they were either unable to give any helpful indication at all, or if they did, it was manifestly 
given without real knowledge of the subject. And uh, the professions were, were very unhappy about that. There were lots of examples of it. And the professions, of course, at that stage um, had long since specialised. So to a significant extent, there are money practitioners, both at the bar and solicitors, and children practitioners. There are some people who do both, of course, but um, quite significantly in the, pra in the practitioner area, uh, they had become two different um, uh, specialisms. But in the judicial area, the difference wasn't even acknowledged, nor, nor even the difference between family law and civil law. So some civil practitioners were expected to do this with, with very little training or experience. Um, and uh, this all emerged in, initially, actually, um, in the conversations that I was having, conversations I was having with uh, Joe Miles, who's a Cambridge University academic, and we were dealing with the uh, Family Justice Council needs group. And we went to um, a, set, a working session in, in Birmingham. And um, Joe Miles, who's a great specialist academic in the subject, had not previously been aware that, that uh, there was no specialist training or ticketing for financial remedies court uh, work, financial remedies work in general. And um, she was um, pretty horrified when she discovered um, that that was the case. And we were we started talking between ourselves and we came up with an idea of a, a paper and it, it, it can be found in 2016, November 2016, Family Law Journal, if you want to look back at it. And we sent it to the then president, Sir James Mumby, who immediately jumped on the idea as 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 being one which was um, was was a good one. And he's was very supportive of it in its early years and is pretty much responsible for getting it going. Um, and he recognised what I think uh, a lot of people now recognise was that there needed to be more specialism in that, that subject from judges, more, more training uh, and also a structure to deal with the issues which come up in financial remedies cases, which are structurally and procedurally different from uh, children cases. Mm. Uh, and so he gave the go ahead in 2017 for us to start setting this, um, this up. Uh, and I think the, the period since has really demonstrated that he was right to make that judgment. Um, and we were right to set up what's now become the Financial Remedies Court structure. It's um, now enabled us to have specialist training. I'm actually talking to you from the uh, conference centre where we're conducting the first ever um, um, induction course for new financial remedies court judges. There are 80 judges doing the course uh, right now um, who um, have a varied degree of experience at it, but are doing a three proper three-day intensive course on financial remedies and um, will hopefully be better equipped. They'll do sitting in days and they'll have to be um, um, FRC um, ticketed. Um, or the informal word ticketed, not formally ticketed, but uh, that will need to become FRC judges on the FRC organogram. And hopefully nobody will be on that organogram unless they have a reasonable knowledge and experience of the, of the, of the subject. Um, my impression is that uh, the anecdotal evidence of FDR indications being given by people who really were not qualified to do, to do that has largely gone away. I'm sure there are probably isolated examples of it now, even now, but I think that's largely gone away. The training is is very much better uh, and financial remedies work is, is now treated as um, a serious specialism for, for, um, for judges. And um, some judges like myself do it uh, full-time, some, some judges do it 
less than full time, perhaps half time or even uh, 25% time. But uh, all judges who do it um, have knowledge of and are specialist in the in the subject. And uh, for me anyway, um, that's very much for the better for the financial remedies and hopefully the professions um, have recognised improvement. And so you you just talked about the um, judicial training that's happening as of now. Um, and there's going, is it right that there's going to be uh, different levels of judicial training as well in the financial remedies court for ticketed judges? So not only will there be the induction course, uh, but uh, further and complex training as yeah. well. There will indeed. So, so the, the, the plan is to have at least one, probably two induction courses a year in which new, new appointments or people who want to move towards financial remedies can come along and be trained. And it's that's targeted at people um, who've, who've not done the work as a judge before. Some of them will be money practitioners who want to know a bit more about it, but a lot of them won't be uh, at all. That's the induction course, which you have to do before you can do it. Once you get past that, then there are um, other courses at the Judicial College, one of which, as you mentioned, is the, the complex money course, which tends to be, we had one the other day, it tends to be for experienced judges and um, looks into to money issues on a, perhaps a slightly higher level, more detailed level. And um, uh, that's targeted at moving judges from the standard FRC judge list to the complex list. Each, each FRC zone has a, within the overall list of judges, has a list of judges who deal with complex cases. And there's an allocation system. Anyone issuing a Form A nowadays fills in a questionnaire, either online or otherwise, and um, that will invite them to set out details of, about the case. And there are certain criteria which we, we apply. And any, anybody who claims their, their case is complex gets referred to me in, in London and I decide whether I think that I agree with them. And uh, if I do, then they get allocated to a particular complex judge who will take their case through uh, to a conclusion. Um, you, well, you mentioned online um, applications now. That's the way, as I understand it, all um, financial remedies work is going. And we've got the digital portal which is being rolled out to everyone now. Um, how is that going? Okay, well, there, there, there are two parts of it. And the, the consent order part of it, generally speaking, um, barristers tend not to get involved, but many solicitors are involved in it. And it's for consent orders, which have never been part of a contested case. And that's been up and running since November 2020. About 32,000 consent orders go through that system each year. They tend to get dealt with within two or three weeks of uh, issue, uh, and it's pretty efficient and effective, and um, it's, it's a really good system, I think, and that's working up and running. Um, what you're referring to, I think, is the contested uh, portal, which is uh, newer to the game, if you like. It's been, it has been around for a long time, but it's it's been slow to develop, and it's had quite a lot of improvements in the last... A uh, few months, and um, it's now really ready for use. And um, what 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 will happen? Which um, should be starting now already, and will be mandated at some point next year, possibly the thirty first of January, or possibly a later date. It's for the president to decide what date that will be. 
but what will happen then is that there'll be a mandation order from the uh, from procedure rules committee and then uh, from that point all documents which are being filed with the court will have to be filed on the portal already 85 percent of Form A's applications are issued on the portal and um, other cases are put on the portal for the judges, but even if they're not issued on the portal. So for, for judges, the portal is where the source of the information is going to be. And from, a, from, from now, really, but definitely from a date next year, everything which is uploaded is, is, is filed with the court will be uploaded onto the portal, onto the relevant case file. Um, and um, so that, that includes... Um, uh, in interim applications, forms E, questionnaires, case summaries, but uh, crucially, uh, hearing bundles. At uh, the moment, hearing bundles come in a variety of electronic forms and some, sometimes in paper forms, but from mandation date, they will have to come in on the portal in electronic form and up will get uploaded to the uh, to the portal and then the judge will, dealing with the case, will have access to, to that uh, that bundle will be able to download it if, if he or she wishes. Um, also, the solicitors will have access to it. Also, barristers will have access to it and they will need to register and and they, uh, they can register now already. And once they're registered, then they can get access to a particular case if they're instructed by a solicitor, by the solicitor giving them permission. If, it, if they're direct access counsel, then they can, there's a procedure for a, a litigant in person to tell the uh, the court staff that um, he or she would like his or her case to be released to the direct, direct access barrister, and the barrister will then have access to the uh, the portal for that uh, that case. Um, Are litigants, litigants in person going to be told that this maybe, is what they'll have to do maybe i'll, I'll tell you about in a second I'll just finish on the, the barristers okay. the the um and this i know that lots of barristers listen to your podcast so i want to get this message out to barristers is that they need very soon to be registered on the portal i know not a lot are not at the moment and don't haven't fully grasped what's happening uh, but all barristers need to join up to the portal need to register need to work out how it how it works there's um, there's, there's, there's a session on the 24th of November, and there's another one, I think, on the 15th of December, and there are quite a few other sessions which are going to be um, laid out. There are online sessions which uh, will be available to practitioners. I thoroughly recommend that everyone uh, goes on at least one of those and registers. And so all barristers should be very much aware of this. It's coming. They, they mustn't uh, bury their head in the sands. It's it's coming their way and it's going to be essential for them to be members of that same applies to solicitors as well. They perhaps know a bit more about it already. Um, uh, Listening to person, have you asked me about that and perfectly properly? Um, a, an imperfection in the system is that litigants in person do not have access to it at the moment. That's hoped that will be cured at some point in the future, but they've had to develop the system without litigants in person on it for the moment. A litigant person can um, can get a document on the bundle by sending it to the uh, bulk scanning centre in Harley. That any litigant person gets that information sent out uh, to them, so they should know how to do that. That information is then loaded onto the portal by the bulk scanning centre in Harley. And so, from the judge's point of view, and from uh, the other side's point of view, and if they've got a lawyer on the other side. Uh, the, the, the document will appear on the uh, on the on the on the screen um, via it's being scanned in. 
And but that, that obviously raises an issue as to how the litigant person gets hold of the bundle, uh, which is a problem which we're confronting. Um, and it's going to have to be a combination for the time being of if there's a lawyer on the other side, that lawyer providing the bundle to the litigant person in some other way, or the court itself providing the bundle to the litigant person in some way. Uh, a greater even problem, even greater problem than that is if there are two litigants in person, um, and judges are going to have to deal with that best they can. Um, the, the obligation to produce bundles and to produce e forms ES one, ES two applies to litigants in person just as it applies to uh, lawyers. Well, the practice um, direction to, doesn't provide that litigants in person don't need to provide bundles. Isn't that right? Well, what's, what what it doesn't quite say that what what it what it says is that, uh, that the obligation to provide uh, ES ones and ES twos and bundles applies to them um, and should uh, if there is a lawyer in the case the lawyer should be the person mainly responsible but if there are no lawyers in the case they should do their best to, to provide a bundle and if they really can't do that then the court will have to devise some system for dealing with that particular case and judges are being trained on that it's not it's not perfect and no doubt there will be some bumps in the, in the road before we get this sorted out but um the the um for any cases involving lawyers this will be the way that they will be done on the portal ah well moving on then talking about bundles and the efficiency statement uh, and the yes yes too um do we, as practitioners, still need to do Practice Direction 27A protocol documents where we've got the ES1, which is in effect a case summary and chronology, uh, and the ES2, which is the schedule of assets? It's a perfectly good question. Um, and uh, the rules haven't been abolished, so they still apply. So technically speaking, the answer to your question is yes. Uh, but in cases which are most cases where the ES1, ES2 and possibly the chronology will uh, really supersede the uh, other documentation, um, I don't think you'll be finding many judges who are going to be troubled by the absence of um, the, the, the other documents. So um, I would urge um, concentration on the documents required by the efficiency statement. That's really what the judges want to have. Well, is the efficiency statement working? Are people abiding by it? They are, yes. I, I would say I, I'm always interested in hearing views of practitioners about it. My impression is that beginning practitioners found it difficult to work with and, and found particular filling in a a joint asset schedule, um, a burdensome and tiresome operation. But my impression is, you'll be able to tell me whether you agree with this, but my impression is that, um, that barristers and solicitors have come to terms with that and are working with it. Certainly in my court, I find almost every case has an ES1 and ES2. Um, from a judge's point of view, um, I would suggest that it's absolutely transformational to have those documents and those are really the most, the two most important documents alongside the case summaries on each side. Those are the two most important documents for, for a judge in, in being able to prepare properly for a, for a case. So um, I would say I would urge um, practitioners to keep cooperating with, with that. But I would say in general terms that it has been adopted 
um, and um, all the judges that I talk to say, yes, it's happening in almost every case. And it's being really, really useful in every single case. So uh, we're, we're certainly not going to be turning uh, our back on it. We, we really like it. The idea for the ES1 and the ES2 actually came from the Family Law Bar Association in the first instance. And it was adopted by um, Justice Moss and myself. And um, what, when we saw what the FLBA had produced, we, we thought it was a really good idea and adopted it. It's been slightly tweaked since the first version of it. But it's, it's really working very well, I would suggest. Yeah. Well, I, I have to agree. I My view of the ES1 is it's an excellent document. It uh, really focuses the mind. And the ES2 yeah. is also uh, extremely useful when it's done correctly. But there's still a lot of confusion um, at the bar and amongst solicitors as to exactly who does what bit. So the message still needs to go out that uh, you just fill in your client's version of events on the ES2. So what yep. you say, what your client says uh, is uh, to be put in their column, yes. both for them and in relation to what they say about the other party and not to fiddle around with the other party's column. Yes, that's well, that's say that. I, haven't, I haven't heard of any uh, complaint or allegation that party A is interfering with party B's column. Um, but uh, I, I'm sure it's happened from time to time. But yes, I, I'm sure that's that's how it should happen. I thought that's how it is happening. That's my impression, certainly. But if, if there are further representations as to what guidance could be given, um, I'm, I'm sure that uh, uh, Ms. Justice Peel and I would be very pleased to receive them. Yes, well, that's certainly been my experience. By the time they reach you, probably those problems have been ironed out. But there's Sometimes Maybe. unnecessary correspondence in the background about what um, who's doing. Yes, but we're probably, it may be it may be that the judges are slightly protected from from the the, um, the correspondence around the production of the the, the, the document. But um, I'm, uh, it, it it ought to work perfectly easily. And I'm generally speaking, I talk to practitioners quite a lot about it. And generally speaking, they tell they tell they tell me that they can see the benefits of the. Yeah of the new system. I'm sure there are lots of arguments about individual entries on it, but um, uh, but uh, I haven't noticed that in court, to be honest. I haven't noticed any skirmishes in court about uh, he, he says this shouldn't be here or he says that should be here, whatever, whatever. Um, I think it I th it is working, as I say, for judges, it's transformational in terms of, of seeing one piece of paper of where all the money, where all the money is. It's very, it's very extremely helpful. What about, um lateness of documents are you getting the es documents on time so obviously it's the day before for first appointment but after that yes. it's meant to be much earlier for fdr and for final hearing does it make any difference to your workload as to when they come in well I think that would depend on a case by case basis, and we would encourage people to comply with the precise timetables set down, but recognize that even with the best of intentions, those aren't always complied with in terms of the time. But um, I haven't I haven't felt since the invention of the ES1 and ES2 that the lateness of the document has been a particular problem in, in my court. Because one of the things that's threatened uh, practitioners might think 
in the efficiency statement is if those documents don't come in within the timeframes, there's the potential of costs consequences following. So costs um, being uh, refused or otherwise um, one party's costs being um, knocked back. Yes. Um, are you aware as to whether or not any of those sort of orders have yet been made? Well, um, I haven't have found it necessary to make any such orders myself. I'll be I'll be honest. So, um, but I think for the good reason that I think these documents are are arriving. I mean, if if somebody was misbehaving and not and mm. and not doing something so that no documents produced, I would certainly think about um, think about. Um, uh, penalising them in cost if, it, if for, for example, it was a wasted hearing. But I, I've, I've not had that myself I've, uh, in the months that uh, this has been going, or since January of this year. I've not had that. I've not had that problem, and haven't had to make any costs of it myself. I, I'm sure there are examples. I'm not aware of any particular ones, but uh, I, I think people are just getting on with it. To be honest, so um, I, I, I think it's, it's it's generally speaking working quite well. And um, what about the future of the FRC? Um, we know that the uh, court system as a whole is really pressed for resources. Is there any particular um, separate pocket of funding that's available to the FRC to help them plough their furrow? <laughs> I wish. No, there's, there's there's no money. And one of the one of the features of the FRC is that we've done all that we've done so far with with no budget at all. Um, we've had we've had people who've um, been seconded to the, the FRC who were already in employment somewhere else. That's been rejigging of of human beings. But we've had no fu- we've had no funding at all. It's all had to be created without a budget. And I don't think that's um, that's going to change anytime soon. And so we have to work within the significant constraints that exist. And the, those constraints exist, as we all know, across the court system. We, we're all very much aware that there are not enough judges in too many cases, and that's something that we have to live with. We do our best to, to improve the efficiency of the way these cases are, uh, are dealt with. Um, in my particular area, you may be aware of the um, reforms that are uh, imminent in relation to the London FRC, which we're rejigging the the way in which that that works hopefully to make it uh, more more efficient um, and transferring some um, fee paid judges sittings from the out london courts into the royal courts of justice think hoping that that would enable us to arrange them more efficiently um, but all that's being done within it within existing budgets as far as the future um, subject to the budget issue is concerned um, I always remind myself that the, the FRC was only conceived um, in 2016 stroke 17 and uh, only uh, was declared to exist at all in February 2021, which is only just a year and a half ago. So we're still young and we're still working on structures. But I think what we've done in the time that we've had in the last few years is to create a nationwide uh, structure which works. We have regular meetings of the, the lead judges uh, from around the country uh, once a year in person and more often that on, online. Um, and it's enabled us to, um, to deal with some of the issues which, which, which come up in terms of 
policy decisions, particularly, in the, for example, about the portal, which we've just talked about, but many other things as well, listing, listing issues, remote court issues. We have a policy, as you may know, for, of the uh, uh, judges being encouraged to adopt the Farquhar 1 recommendations on remote courts, but having the discretion within their areas to do something different. But um, we now have a structure which works, enables us to do much better in terms of allocation, enables us to do much better in terms of specialism, uh, much better in terms of uh, training and in terms of other policy initiatives, enables us to be much more uh, proactive and, and, and than if we were just simply one, one part of the family court without any different structure. Yeah, and talking about remote hearings, and in fact, life before the fully established FRC, we were doing for a period paper first appointments. Um, do you think so? Were people sending their proposed um, directions in where a first appointment wasn't going to be anything other than directions? Do you think that that is? Um, actually something we should be returning to in circumstances where we appear to be going back to more and more face-to-face -face first appointments? Well, um, I don't know that we are going back to more face-to-face -face first appointments. We are, I think in some areas of the country that may be true, but not in, certainly not in my area. And I think the majority of areas have remote first appointments, but attended FDRs and final hearings and attended directions hearings sorry uh, remote directions hearings but that that can vary if you mean by paper first appointments the sort of experiment that was introduced during covid really just to just to do them all on paper and receive written representations that didn't that did not work and um we have um stopped doing that in the london frc some time ago if you Why mean you by sorry why did you find that it didn't work? What was going wrong with that? Can I make a distinction between uh, what might what sometimes calls a paper first appointment, which was basically a contested first appointment but with written submissions, yes. um, and and a, 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 the accelerated first appointment procedure, which is a consensual thing, which we thoroughly encourage and is used in quite a few cases, which means that you don't have to have a um, an attended uh, remote or otherwise first appointment it's all uh, all agreed where the directions are agreed and where the judge has been able to scrutinize the order and the questionnaires in advance that that should be happening and sh should be encouraged and we do encourage that it's part of the primary principles document and very much a live issue um the the paper first appointment issue which was really introduced in London, I don't know where else as well, but certainly in London, at the beginning of COVID, I think in March 2020, um, really caused problems because judges found that it was actually quite difficult to deal with um, uh, with um, first appointments on written submissions and actually ended up taking a lot longer to deal with in any event um, and found it much easier to have an attended hearing where you could have a dialogue. So if you're going through a questionnaire, um, and you're wanting to delete certain questions because they're not proportionate or not relevant, it's much easier to do that in the con context of a dialogue with the party who wants to ask that question. Well, why are you asking that question? Is my answer yes, or I'll allow that question, or no, I won't allow that question. Doing it on paper, um, we tend to find that, that people didn't address the issues which we wanted to, to be addressed, and it was almost impossible to make a, a fair decision on paper. So we, we got rid of those now in London, certainly. I don't know whether they exist anywhere else. I don't think they do. Well, that's really useful to know. 
uh, um, certainly as a practitioner, to know that that's not likely to be um, coming back on the scene and also about the problems that arose uh, in yep. circumstances where we sent off our documents into the ether and didn't necessarily hear anything back, certainly as barristers, whether or not the solicitors did is another matter. But um, yeah, that's uh, yes, very useful. Um, thank you ever so much for talking to me then about the FRC. And I'm going to hand you back to Tara now to talk about pensions. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Helen. Yes, Judge, I read um, with interest recently your article in the Financial Remedies Journal um, yeah. about the continuing work of the Pensions Advisory Group, which you co-chair, uh, yeah. and the formation of a new group, uh, PAG2. Now, we all know in July 2019, uh, PAG produced its report, Guide to Treatment on Pensions on Divorce, which is a well-leafed um, document on pensions. So why do we need PAG 2? Well, so PAG 1, um, or PAG as it was then known, uh, <laughs> was uh, the product of about three years of work from 2017, I think, until 2019. And it involved a huge number of people, um, lots of solicitors, lots of barristers, some judges, and um, lots of pension um, uh, experts, who we called PODES, pension and divorce experts. Uh, and we sat down and over a period of three years. We tried to identify um, what were the issues which needed to be addressed and tried to address them the best we can, uh, as best we could. And we produced, as you just said, the document in July 2019. Um, in the period since July 2019, or let me say in the production of the first document, there were some issues which there were differences of opinions on, mm. lots of differences of opinion on. And, and if you read the document carefully, some of them are, um, are expressed in views of, well, there's some people who think this, some people who think that, and um, we, we, we can't resolve that argument. The PAC hasn't got the power to resolve that argument, but here's some, here's a, his the alternative views, and then there are lots of lots of issues that we did manage to um, agree upon, and, um, and and gave a policy steer. What is the hmm. status of of that of that document? Well, it's only it's only guidance. I think I said in my judgment in W and H that it should be regarded as as prima facie persuasive, but subject to judicial scrutiny and um, and judicial disagreement, and then. Then if one examines what happened after 2019, there are quite a few um, reported decisions on, on, on pensions at various different um, levels, uh, and also quite a lot of um, developments um, uh, in terms of the economy of pensions, the structure of pensions, for example, the, um, uh, the, the, the whole of the uh, McLeod litigation on public sector mm. pensions, has all happened since then, and uh, so th those of us who were involved in in uh, the first PAG uh, got together um, probably earlier on this year and said, "Should we revisit um, this subject?" And we got together um, a similar group, but uh, some, some people didn't want to do it. Some people retired, and we got some new people, including some people who'd um, been um, hostile to some of the recommendations before. So it was intended to be a broad church. We did a we did a survey which was answered uh, quite quite by quite a large number of people saying what did you think of PAG PAG one what did you think were the issues which were dealt with satisfactorily 
what would you like? What do you think needed more insistence on? What, what should we talk about now? And um, the result was that we got a fairly favourable response. Um, most people thought it was a pretty useful document. It had been quite influential in the years since. Um, and, but there were some comments about particular issues which might need revisiting and the wording that we had in 2019 might need looking at again. So, for example, the issue of apportionment of premarital pensions is an issue which is obviously a very live topic. Mm. Offsetting um, was something which we attempted to look at in PAG1, but perhaps haven't, haven't produced a sort of uh, clear enough document on. And there are various other smaller things um, as well. What, one, of, one of those is that we put out a, a challenge in in PAG1 to for somebody to produce sort of the pension equivalents of the Duxbury tables. Mm. And um, Jonathan Galbraith has produced yeah. the Galbraith tables, as he's, as he's called them. Um, and um, it's very much um, up for discussion now as to whether those should have the status of Duxbury tables and be used or whether they are uh, whether they have controversial elements, which means they shouldn't be mm. used. And there are there are differences of opinions, differences of opinions on that on that subject. And that's something which PAG two is looking uh, clearly at. And there 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 are many other issues um, which we're which we've been looking at. It's been meeting for about six months now, in fact, and um, its work is not yet done by any means. And we're looking to. Have some further meetings and i think the report probably won't be available till the middle of 2023 that would be my best right. estimate so so watch this space um for more space, yeah. for more guidance on pensions and for practitioners who um are dealing with pensions so really any financial remedies practitioner apart from the pag resource um which we all find extremely helpful are you in a position to commend any other resources or do you have a list of top cases which you think every practitioner dealing with pensions should be aware of? Uh, well, there are there are quite a number of cases on the subject and um, I don't think it's appropriate for me to sort of pick any of those individual ones out, but you, I'm sure you'll know what they are. And, and um, some of those specifically refer to the PAG report and and utilize some of its provisions others don't and and there, there are, there's a range of opinions as to how these things should be dealt with in general terms and also in particular fact terms and um, I don't think we we would claim that we've that we've got a, a united position on, that, on every issue far from it mm. there are lots of rooms for differences of opinion amongst for example amongst um, PODES, pension and also experts. Um, the Gal the Galbraith tables are some by some of them supported and some of them not supported, and mm. some of them support some of them not supported on actuarial grounds. So they, they think that the the maths involved is um, is uh, not satisfactory. Other others think the maths is absolutely fine. So um, we, we're sort of struggling to um, work out a, a form of words which captures that that. that range of opinions and gives mm. appropriate um, um, uh, status to the Galbraith um, tables. But I think that's, um, that's, a, that's a debate which will develop in the month, months mm. ahead. And, uh, we, I don't know at the moment where that debate will, will end up. I think the jury's out. 
Uh, and in your um, article and, and today, you've mentioned very frankly that there were various uh, issues that were debated fiercely. Um, and uh, you very much view PAG2 as not being an attempt to, to reopen old wounds. But um, pensions, especially for practitioners, I think everyone would agree, has, al has always been a, a difficult area. And so I suppose in one way it's it's heartening if even um, the experts can't agree on um, certain things. But are you able to tell us which in particular of the issues um, sort of divided experts and, wh and which are the most difficult to actually get a consensus on? Well, there's a, there's a range of things and the dis difference of opinion ranges within that range of things and mm. so it's difficult to give a precise answer to that question but in broad terms there are some mathematical actuarial questions which some of the actuaries disagree about what, what assumptions you should make about investment returns and discounting rates and that sort of thing mm. which the actuaries or the codes have some strong views on and the lawyers tend to um, sit, sit back and uh, watch with the amazement the strength of feeling from the the podes on the, those issues so that's one mm. that's one area of ter territory which is uh, uh, which there are differences of opinion on and then there are there are other more principled areas uh, where people just have different different views um, so in terms of uh, offsetting um, how how that should be conducted whether that's really a matter for the section 25 exercise of the court or to what extent um, a mathematical answer formulaic answer can be produced to that question is is a matter of uh, debate and if you if you uh, think there should be a mathematical answer what that mathematical answer is and how you project it can mm. give rise to lots of different arguments so that that's one that's another um, area the galbraith tables i've already mentioned perhaps similar along those same lines and then you've got this issue of um, if you're trying to promote equality between a husband and wife, say, um, what, what does that actually mean in the context of pensions? And you've got the Family Justice Council Needs Committee, which gave a view of that in 2018. You've got PAGS steer on that um, in 2019, and you've got various uh, judgments on, on that. Does it make a difference, for example, that um, that it's a big money case? If there's lots of money around, uh, are you less interested in the income pr production um, uh, aspect of pensions, or does it apply more in small money cases? Is, is are small money cases um, more amenable to having equal incomes uh, reports and uh, decisions based on equal incomes? Um, is it different for young younger people, or, mm -hmm. or should it just preserve for older people? Um, and uh, what's the difference between young and old? When when is the retirement on the horizon? There are lots of debates uh, to be had uh, had about that. Amongst the arguments, there is if if you're not going down an equal incomes route, you're going down an equal capital route. Uh, what what capital figure should you use? Should you use the cash equivalent? Uh, value which lots of codes will tell you um is is not representative of the real value particularly in um, defined contribution sorry defined benefit schemes um or or uh, or, or do or do, do some sort of actuarial calculations to the um, true value of a of a, of a 
defined a benefit fund? If so, what um, what assumptions do you make in order to produce a, a, a fair uh, outcome? Um, and different arguments apply in, in different ages, different sorts of pensions, defined contribution mm-hmm. pensions, different from defined benefit pensions, um, guaranteed annuity pensions, different again. Um, there are lots of very complicated arguments on, on mm-hmm. this, which are quite difficult to to narrow down to one statement of, uh, of uh, principle. Sometimes some people um, feel more comfortable with a division based on equal incomes in certain cases, others feel less comfortable with that. And it's, it's, um, it's a debate which is very much live and ongoing. And in fact, just reminding us all that um, these sorts of cases, uh, even though there are guiding principles, um, really do depend on the facts of each and every case. Yes, absolutely. And, and um, one, one shouldn't forget that in the end, this isn't a mathematical um, a, a formulaic game that one's playing. It's it's a, a, a whole application of all the Section 25 uh, factors. Um, there's a very good article by Fiona Hay in the Family Law Journal a couple of months ago, which talks about that. We must never forget that uh, the discretionary element of Section 25 sort of supersedes uh, everything else, really. Or, but having said that, it's sometimes quite helpful to have some mathematical calculations which yeah. give clear answers, which everyone can unite around. Um, but there is no right answer to any, any of this. This is, this is <laughs> one of the difficulties with, with it. We try very hard to, to get as close as possible to a clear guidance, giving a right answer. But we recognise that... Um, that it's almost impossible to do that in, a, in any kind of universal way. Well, Judge, um, on that note, um, I think we'll leave it there. But can I just say a huge thank you for joining the podcast? That has been extremely informative. And I know it's something that our listeners will really enjoy listening to. So a big thank you from all of us. Thank you for asking me. Mm-hmm.